please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Today, we've reached the section of Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in which he deals specifically with the Lord's Supper. This was not planned ahead. Chapters 11 through 14 of this letter focus on the corporate worship of the church. What happens when believers of a local body of Christ gather together for worship? His main concern should be important for all of us to really understand, and it's that the church must be properly ordered and structured. Why? Because a church has to conduct itself in a manner that edifies its members. Edify means to build up. But check yourself here, because if you hear this and immediately think only of your own personal edification or building up, meaning your own personal worth or individual rights or opinions or expression, you are already about to miss the point. The edification or building up is meant to describe the church as a whole, a group of people who belong to Jesus Christ and live lives together that demonstrate the grace given to them in Christ, lives that live out the love that Christ showed in his death for us. The letter to the Corinthians provides a telling example of the necessity for a church to conduct itself this way precisely because so many of these believers were living for self-expression and their own desires instead of aiming for the edification of the church as a whole. We've already seen in this letter the bitter and divisive results of their selfish individualism. Factious groups, quarreling, boasting in men, jealousy, sexual immorality, arrogance, the compromise of truth, taking each other to court, marital strife, revisited idolatry, overconfidence in their freedom, and diversions from true worship. So why wouldn't we expect to see the same selfish divisiveness at the Lord's Supper. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. And I'll be going through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? You do not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning or concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the Lord's body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Now in this section there are four basic parts to Paul's instruction. And part one is just a description of what the Corinthians were doing in verses 17 through 22. And it looks like the Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a manner that resembled much too closely something else we've already studied. What is it? Those banquets held in Corinth at pagan temples or either even in the guild halls looked more like them than what the Lord's Supper should be. In verses 17 and 18 and then 20 and 22, here again, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you came together or come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then to 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Well, here we go again. First thing we see are the divisions. Here, the well-off were eating a sumptuously scrumptious meal while the poor were still what? Hungry. In other words, many who are not poor were mistreating the poor. By using the plural word divisions, Paul indicates that there were multiple divisions on display here. Besides the one mentioned, the socially elite and the poor division. In their culture, yes, the rich did not eat with the poor, usually or at all. But also the Jews did not eat with the Greeks, and nobody ate with the Romans. That's the way it worked. The many divisions and factions evident at the Lord's Supper also indicated that it's very probable the followers of those various different teachers back in the first chapter or two, those groups in this congregation were probably still displaying their loyalties at these meals. Especially in the Mediterranean world, but other parts of the world as well, sharing a meal together indicated a certain kind of bond had formed. You know, we're kind of starting to lose that in much of our culture. But especially in the Mediterranean world, this is true. So evidently, the people in the Corinthian church had reverted into their previous pagan habits about how they did or did not share meals. And Paul even says in verse 20 that their Lord's Supper was not the Lord's Supper. That's pretty harsh, pretty blunt. So why is Paul so outraged? Well, for one reason, he mentions the the poor were being shamed. And the divisions evident at the meal definitely did not look like a meal together as believers. This is nothing less than despising the congregation that is united in Christ. That's the horrible difference that we see. In verse 19, Paul actually finds one benefit that is revealed in their behavior. And if you've never seen this verse here in this passage before, this really strikes you, makes you stop for a second, which it should. He writes, For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Have you ever thought about that? 
factions. Using this word indicates, as we've already seen, that the divisions came from selfish motives. So those who are genuine are truly the Christians. The rest are question marks. And in many situations like this, the more assertive, selfishly motivated people do what? They usually stick out. You can hear them. You can watch them misbehave. You can watch, watch them call attention to themselves, etc., etc., etc. While the genuine believers, if you can picture this, are working probably to help and serve and honor the Lord as they genuinely grieve about what's going on, seeing others shamed and ridiculed and, exclu- and excluded. And some of these genuine Christians were probably trying to do this right. But this was early on in the church, and there's another word for these meals. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper during love feasts. And it's obvious that these were not structured and ordered, which is what Paul is trying to provide answers for here. The first part of verse 21 gives us another reason why the Corinthians were doing what they why what they were doing can't be called the Lord's Supper. The Christian Standard Bible renders this verse and I read it this way the second time for the at the meal each one eats his own supper. Joy. The problem Some were eating and drinking lavishly because they just had more available, but were not sharing their abundance with anyone else. If they were celebrating it correctly, what would we see? Everybody would be participating and no one would be drunk. What a stark, horrible contrast. Paul voices his astonishment in verse 22. This is really strong. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? It's almost like, what can I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what is Paul saying? He's basically just saying something like this. It'd be much better if you'd eat and drink at home instead of subjecting fellow believers to your selfishness and narcissism, i.e. really bad behavior. Your behavior despises God's church. So the overriding distinctive emphasis here is that believers must understand that when they eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord, they are guests at his table. How many of you have had talks given to you when you were a child, or to your own if you have them, 
about what table you happen to be at. Especially when you go somewhere else. And there may be a distinct difference around that more special table at a special time of the year or at somebody's house who has invited you to come. True? If we could remember this, that when we take the bread and the cup, we are guests at the Lord's table. And it's a little picture of a wedding feast when we join in the presence of the Lord when he comes back or when we go to his presence and then wait for this incredible meal around the table of the Lord with everyone. Can't even picture it. If Christians partake without loving their fellow church members, whatever that looks like, they are dishonoring the Lord himself. And that's why they must learn what Jesus said when he instituted his supper, which Paul now gets to in part two of his instructions. The tradition of the Lord's Supper in verses 23 through 26 that we have read almost every single time from this passage that we have partaken of the Lord's Supper together. Now, after expressing in no uncertain terms his rebuke of their behavior in the previous verse, now, beginning in verse 23, Paul makes point a point of emphasizing that the Lord's Supper is not just another meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I received and delivered are technical terms which refer to the receiving and passing along of oral tradition. And remember, it's likely that the Gospels had not yet been written when Paul wrote this letter. This is one of the earliest books that we have. And if they were written, we don't know how far around the Mediterranean they had traveled as far as everybody seeing them and using them. So either this oral tradition was passed down from the other apostles who were present when Jesus instituted the supper, that is possible here by this wording, or Paul received direct revelation from Jesus himself, which is also very possible because he did get special instruction after God brought him to himself. The point is that these words did not originate from Paul himself or any of the apostles. That's the point. These words came from Jesus who instituted this supper. The end of verse 23, Paul calls attention to the setting in which the Lord's Supper took place. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed. What a contrast. 
while Jesus' enemies were actively carrying out their plans to arrest him, he was instituting the Lord's Supper. There's also a very interesting possibility here about that word betrayed. Because the root meaning of it is handed over. So is this talking about the betrayal of Judas? Or is it talking about God handing over his son to be arrested and killed on behalf of those he came to save? It's not crystal clear, but it makes me smile. Next, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is toward the end of the Passover meal. And Jesus does not say the bread becomes his body, which is the Roman Catholic Church's view. He does not say that his body is in, with, or under the bread, which is the Lutheran view. Nor does he say that this bread represents or symbolizes his body, which is the memorialist view. What does he say? This is my body, been argued about for centuries. This is sacramental language. What does that mean? That means that there is a sign, bread and wine, and the thing signified, body and blood. When sacramental language is used, one thing, bread, can be spoken of as though it were the other thing, the body. You might want to check your insert in your bulletin and read what we just read, because it says exactly that. In other words, a spiritual presence is indicated here. The bread the believer eats is a sign of Jesus' glorified body, which is now in heaven. Through the Holy Spirit, partakers of the bread are brought together by faith into fellowship with Christ and experience his sacred presence. Yes, you can't get our vocabulary around this. How do we experience Christ's presence at his supper? It's a legitimate question. Have you ever asked it? Is it just normal? He indwells us in the spirit. We're all gathered together, so of course he's here. Well, let me offer something I found that summarizes some things from someone's personal experience of finally getting to take the Lord's Supper at a certain point in their young life and being all excited about it. And when they took it, 
They were expecting something to happen, and what they were expecting to happen didn't really happen. And so they were trying to figure out what exactly this is. I think most adults have exactly the same response most of the time. How do you experience Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper? As the host, he invited us to be his guest at his table. First, as the mediator of the new covenant that God has made, he considered us as a covenant partner. Third, as the Lamb of God slain on the cross, he cleansed us from our sins. Fourth, as our brother, he showed us how to live to God's glory and express our thankfulness to him. As the source of complete happiness, he filled us not with grief and sadness for his death, but with joy and gladness for his presence. As a host, as a mediator, the mediator, as the lamb, as our brother, and as our source of complete happiness. As we meditate on those things, those truths, by faith trusting in who Christ is and what he accomplished, quote, it grows on you, unquote. And your faith will grow. So, remembering both his body and blood is not only being sad and sorrowful when considering the fact that Christ had to die for my sin. By the way, that is part of the process of preparing to come to the table in repentance. That's part of it. Nobody's happy that they sinned so much that Christ had to come to die, so you've got to deal with that at some level. But remembering is not just that. It also means recalling to mind and considering all that the saving death of Jesus means for us. In verse 25, he gets to the cup. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus declares here that the shedding of his blood will be at least these three things. The means by which the new covenant is ratified. The means by which the new covenant is ratified by his blood. It's the means by which our sins are forgiven. His blood covers them. And the means by which the law is written upon our hearts. 
And this new covenant is renewed every time we come to the table of the Lord. I'm not the only person in here that needs to remember this. Oh yeah, this is who I am. I'm a child of the king, bought with the Lord's own blood. And then I go through a list as much as I can remember about what that accomplished. It's just like it's the Sunday school lesson. If you hear a list a mile long of what Jesus or what God has done in creation and in the world and compared to everything in the world that he made and how much greater he is, your faith grows. And you appreciate it more, which means you're more grateful and more humbled than you were before. And that's the point. And in verse 26, we find something that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when did Jesus institute this meal? The night before he died. Can you imagine the apostles trying to figure this out? They didn't immediately. But when they saw the resurrected Christ and he gathered them together, guys that didn't express themselves very well and never talked, I bet they talked more than Peter. These guys were gathered. They were pondering, putting all this together believing what they saw because they had instructions for him that he explained and the Holy Spirit made it clear to him. There's a reason why all but one of those guys went willingly to their deaths for being a Christian, not for being crooks. They were willing and able because they understood better than anybody what it meant that Jesus had come to buy them with the price of his own blood, his own death, and that God had accepted that sacrifice. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what is this? This is nothing less than a proclamation of the gospel. This is a proclamation of the gospel. It includes all the key elements of the gospel. It's often called, because someone famous in history called it this, the visible word. If somebody doesn't know anything about the Bible and they come from another part of the world and they see us doing this, or they're sitting here watching us do this, what are they thinking? We ought to ask someone that question. You're thinking, they're thinking, what in the world are these people doing? What does this mean? 
This is too small to be a meal. Like the Corinthians were making it into. Why are the people so quiet, reverent, and yet joyful and sad at the same time? Why are they singing to a God they cannot see? All of those questions are what? Good questions. Which we can start to answer. So when Christ instituted this sacrament, his death the next day would be the beginning of the end. Which is why the supper is to be celebrated by the church until he returns. Until that end. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we celebrate God's mercy to us in Jesus. Look, would you agree, the Corinthian church had a whole lot to change here? Maybe now that we, we can see how and why the fellowship meal version of the Lord's Supper has been pared down to what we celebrate today. I hope this makes sense. The Passover happened just once a year, and it was only celebrated by Jews. The Lord's Supper is meant to be celebrated on a regular basis throughout the year as a sign and seal of the new covenant in Christ for all believers everywhere until Christ returns. So far, the Apostle Paul has given the first two parts of his four-part instructions. The last two are quick. First, the Corinthians' dreadful misbehavior has been exposed even when celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's what the first part was that Paul dealt with. And then second, the reminder of what Christ instituted. He's just laid it out to him again. And now part three, the Corinthians must examine themselves. This carries a whole lot more weight when you go through the whole thing instead of just plucking it out. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and to eat so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What? I'll get to it. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So part Partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner was described back in verses 17 through 22. And what was it a picture of? It was a picture of selfishness, which completely negates the message of the gospel and the whole point of the meal. It's not the reflection of the love and grace given to them by Christ who died for them. I've never partaken in a crazy Christian version of this, the love feast where everybody's just, you know, it's like a fellowship where you, you have to fend off the hungry 
so that the older people can actually get in line and eat or the kids destroy the table before it's even, you've even gotten there. It's not crazy. There's not little groups sitting everywhere, and these people don't like these people. They're sitting over here, and we got all the meat, and let's give them all the stuff that so-and-so brought. You understand? That's not the picture. I don't think any of us have ever experienced much of that at all. Hopefully not. But this was the picture of the Corinthians. So do you see why he had to lay it on like this? But there are applications for us in this as well. What Jesus did by giving his own body as a sacrifice for us and and shedding his own blood as the cost of our purchase from eternal condemnation is despised and trashed when people The people he brought into his new covenant at such a cost act with no regard and love for one another, even as they eat at his table. That's what these people didn't get. So it's been pared down. Can we still do that? Honestly, ask yourself, yeah, we can. How? How? By holding grudges and being bitter and not forgiving people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. It applies. We all have these issues. The judgment these people brought on themselves, it says, included weakness, illness, and even death. This does not mean that if someone in the church is weak, ill, or dying, that it proves they were negligent in examining themselves for the Lord's Supper and not a believer at all. We've been maybe in places where you could see people doing this. Oh, they're ill again. They must be sinning against the Lord. There's not a one-to-one correspondence between sickness and sin. It may apply sometimes, but it's, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. But this should, and it does, doesn't it, get your attention? The word died here is literally have gone to sleep, which is only used in the New Testament for believers. So what's going on here? This is not saying a Christian can lose their salvation because God ordered their death. It's a metaphor used for the death of genuine believers. This is saying that this judgment is remedial and disciplinary, not final. Does that that help? The judgment is actually what many have called down through history a severe mercy. You heard that? What's a we need to read more Puritans? What's a severe mercy? It's called that because the Lord judges so that they will not be condemned in the final judgment.
saying because he has judged that his name will no longer be trashed in this way by whoever. That's serious. And then his final words are very few. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for, or the better translation, I think, is share with. That word can be translated either way, depending on the emphasis, probably both. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. What do you think? This has been an interesting week. It's really helped my picture of what we're doing. Especially stuff like being sad and grieved that my sin is the one that caused Jesus to have to come in order to deliver me, which he did. And to turn that, though, into the joy of knowing that he is present. So wherever you're at in your heart, let your heart and your mind come together as we celebrate this meal. The Lord's Supper, as we've seen, is not appointed primarily for our physical body. If it was, and we ate like this all the time, Literally, there wouldn't be much of us to see. But the spiritual nourishment is absolutely unmeasurable. Scripture teaches that we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus on and believe Christ. So as we sing, let the words of this him refresh and encourage your faith in the lamb of god how he did come how he was the accepted atoning sacrifice for our sin and how he will come again as the king of kings that's a whole lot to look forward to